0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Bago Maradigan, here at the Halifax International Security Forum in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. We're going to spend the weekend here at one of the world's most important security forums, where we are going to hear from leaders from around the world. The Halifax Forum's public sessions will be streamed on YouTube, as well as the Halifax International Security Forum website. Joining us now to discuss the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Michael Oslin, the Payson J. Treat Distinguished Research Fellow, in contemporary Asia at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, Heather Hurlbert, the director of the New Models of Policy Change Project at the New America Think Tank's political reform program and former Pentagon Comptroller, Dr. Dov Zakheim, who among his many affiliations is uh, associated with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report, and our cyber coverage overall, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us, especially from this lovely airport lounge here at Dulles Airport on our way to the Halifax International uh, Security Forum. Dove, uh, start us off, right? Normally, Mike Herson gives us a little bit of a feed Uh, on what to expect in the week. Where do we stand on the defense budget? Obviously, Kevin McCarthy had a uh, very long speech, record-setting, at least in the modern uh, history of the House since 1909, beating Nancy Pelosi's record. More broadly, tell us where it is we stand right now.
1: Well, my understanding is, first of all, I can never fill Mike's shoes, but my understanding is that the uh, authorization is moving forward. Looks like early December. The thing to remember is even if they get the the authorization bill, which, you know, becomes an act and it'll be the 60th year, they still have to sort out the defense appropriation. And the House is still down at 7.05. So even if they were to agree to 7.25 on the authorization, if they split the difference, they're back to the administration's level. So that's one thing to watch. How far above 7.15 will this ultimately go?
0: Uh, Heather, your thoughts on this as we as this, the gigantic defense sausage gets made?
2: Yeah, I think we what we should be looking for in early December is something that looks a little reminiscent of the 2010-2011 scenario, where you're going to have defense, build back better, and uh, debt ceiling all moving at the same time with some really big political pressures in both parties. So I'm I could end up with a bit of a giant mess in the sausage factory. And and
0: what sort of a mess, right? I mean, so if you were gaming this out right now and and where you think it falls, how do you think it breaks? Because I mean, we've been talking for some months on the program, we could end up in a BCA-like scenario even if nobody wants it.
2: Yeah, I do think that is very likely. And we have kind of steered, if you saw even the process to get to this point on defensive probes was um, touch and go a couple times. And I am not sure particularly, frankly, what I'm watching for is if Build Back Better doesn't go smoothly in the Senate, then um, Pelosi loses a few key folks on defense auth, just as a way of showing anger in response to that. And then you're in BCA territory.
1: And December 3rd is the key date for the uh, debt ceiling. And so <clears throat> what you could have, as Heather says, is, is a delay because I don't know if we'll go all the way to a BCA, but the CR could get extended. And when we're talking about competing with China, uh, you don't want to extend the CR. You have to have these new starts and at a significant level. There are always a few exceptions, but we need an across the board increase. And right now that's questionable.
0: Uh, does it matter, um, because we heard from Gordon Adams, uh, Dr. Gordon Adams, who joins us on a regular basis as well. He thought that this might be able to be the, the debt. Uh, could be extended because of all sorts of mechanisms all the way into January. Does that give us a little bit more breathing room?
2: You know, maybe it does. I think the thing that worries me, and while I'm more in Gordon's camp than Dove's camp about how much defense spending we need, we do need to be clear on what we're doing. And I actually worry that we're not in BCA territory, partly because, frankly, we don't have the political cohesion to create even BCA which may have been a mess, but we all understood where we were. And this time, I think you're much more likely to end up in a month-to-month-to-month, which is the worst-case scenario, no matter what you think the levels should actually be. Um,
0: You know, everybody else has weighed in on this. Dove certainly has. And I want to get your take on this, Heather. Is the administration doing a good enough job to pave the way for whatever the national security and the national defense strategies are going to say? Because if there are going to be major muscle movements, and it does not appear to be the case so far, but... Everybody's been saying next year, next year, next year will be the big year. Is the administration doing the best job it can to pave the way for potentially tough choices?
2: From what I have seen, and you know I don't, I don't want to claim any particular inside insight, but I, I think we're in a decent place as far as that's concerned, but we are I don't feel very confident about what finally comes out of the hill nor do I feel very confident about, again, not so much the administration, but our broader political system's ability to make tough choices. I think we're at a point right now that you can you can make a set of tough choices in the executive branch and unmake them on the Hill. You can make a different set of tough choices on the Hill and then unmake them in the executive branch and that's my, again, my biggest worry, almost more than what the choices are, is that we're just not capable of making choices.
0: Is there a way, Dove? right? I mean, you had to make some deals uh, when you were a comptroller. Um, is it possible to make a defense deal that includes uh, the Build Back Better?
1: It's going to be hard. Um, <clears throat> when I was uh, going up for confirmation, uh, Dan Inouye said to me, you've got to give a little to get a little. You know, we're coming up to an election year. Not too many people want to give; they all want to get. It's going to be hard.
0: Heather?
2: <clears throat> I got I got nothing to top the words from the master there. That we got we got bipartisan agreement on that one.
0: <laughs> that was uh, that was great. By the way, you had even the nice gravelly delivery. Misha, you've been very patient. I want to bring you into the discussion now. There was supposed to be a summit meeting, a virtual summit meeting with President Biden and uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, That got degraded to a meeting. Uh, It was three and a half hours, and you said it had low expectations. And from your perspective in the piece that you wrote, it met uh, the low expectations. What what was the significance of, of this meeting? Because the administration, on the one hand, continues to talk tough on the other hand, is saying that there is a prospect, and there was a climate agreement, right? I mean, we'll see whether or not the Chinese abide by it. From your standpoint, what were the takeaways from this meeting?
3: Well, I'm not sure there were any, Vago. I mean, the uh, the the degree to which it went from being not just a summit, but a summit that could fundamentally reset U.S.-China relations, which whenever you're saying that, you already know that probably very little is gonna happen, because if, the, if they, they're going to be reset, you don't need to reset them, they just do. Uh, then it went down, as you said, to, a meeting and uh, and it, it was a weird, I think it was a sort of uneasy combination of this new hardcore realism that Biden has inherited from Trump and in fact in some ways even, even gone beyond in terms of rhetoric with a sort of return to pre-2017, let's work on a whole different bunch of issues together because it's so important that we do so. Now, I don't think the two meshed very well. Uh, there, as you said, there was an agreement on climate, but just coming off of uh, the, the, uh, the cop agreement that, you know, that was watered down by China and Russia, um, there can't be too much hope for that. Um, the big takeaway I think that people would point to is the, the agreement to start talking about talks over nuclear weapons, uh, which is something the Chinese have never done. Uh, but it's also a way to ensure that no real meaningful talks ever happen because you're just talking about talks. I understand it's a, it's a process and it will take a long time. Um, but the Chinese, uh, especially with the recent reports we have, are, are fundamentally committed to a major expansion of their nuclear arsenal, of their nuclear capabilities. They have consistently refused to go into any talks on those. And so I think this is something that we're going to have to watch very carefully to see if anything meaningful comes out of it.
0: Um, wouldn't you uh, give the administration uh, some positive points? I mean, when I talk to my friends at the EU, they talk about you know, a sea change in terms of how, for example, the EU and Europe looks uh, at China. There's a change among Germans as they look at this. There's greater inter- integration and cooperation with the Japanese, for example, when you talk to the Japanese about greater planning and bringing defense budgets and planning together. From your standpoint, I mean, has the administration been making progress, or is this Sort of Obama two from the standpoint of, you know, we don't want to rock the boat. You know, don't have rhetoric that's that's too harsh. Although I have to say that administration did work on building capabilities and was very focused on China. The whole question that they had was, don't let your rhetoric become the the the, the fuel for uh, Chinese rhetoric.
3: Well, that's right. Those are two different things. Do you want to have a very assertive, you know, from from our position, a very assertive policy to counteract China's development and expansion in certain areas? Or do you want to try to get along with China? And can can you – do? every administration says they're trying to do both. And so far, what we've seen is um, less ability to do anything to blunt China's growth and expansion uh, without real cohesion in terms of bringing together all of our different partners and allies. I think that started uh, with Trump, They, they uh, thinking about Quad uh, and other things. This is something that the Biden administration has uh, continued and in fact enhanced, and, and that's very good. I think in some ways we're going to have to wait to see what their capstone documents are, the national security strategy, national defense strategy, and so on, to see how they envision where we are in in this relationship it's it's fine to talk about the important areas we have to do work with China in even though we actually get very little out of that over decades uh, versus stating that we recognize that we're not just in a competition we are in an adver- we are in an adversarial relationship as CIA director Bill Burns indicated a few weeks ago if you would acknowledge that you're in an adversarial relationship then that should guide the policy that you follow. A competition, you just need to compete. So the the administration's arguments about uh, responsible or managing the competition, responsible competition, guardrails, uh, those I think is that's just more rhetoric than actual guidance for where we need to go.
0: Um, I, I, I want to go to Heather in, in just a moment, but one uh, follow-up question. Right, I mean, One of the big uh, problems was for all the tough talk, President Trump had told Xi that, look, you know I need an economic deal from you and and you know so when dealing with authoritarian regimes that tends to undermine your message. Biden however th- on three separate occasions has mentioned the United States has an obligation to defend Taiwan. I don't think it's an accidental statement especially at a time when we've convinced ourselves that the Chinese are convinced if they wanted to take Taiwan they could take Taiwan. Is it, do you see at least better senior level, right? I mean, at, at the end, authoritarians tend to respond to whoever the leader is, as opposed to you know, Secretary Austin or something like that. Do you think that the statements the president has been making helps that deterrence and helps bring that sort of a more cohesive deterrent, global deterrent strategy together?
3: Well, you remember once he stated in a town hall that we would defend Taiwan, that was walked back by the White House the next day. And, and in fact, they reaffirmed the one China policy uh, before this meeting, during this summit, um, I think where he's benefited from is what you mentioned before: is that there is a greater uh, convergence now on the part of the United States with allies like Japan, with the EU. We had an EU delegation uh, to Taiwan last week. The Japanese have made very clear that um, they consider Taiwan essentially an existential threat, meaning the takeover of Taiwan, and so that that is a forcing function for the administration. Uh, but. They have also been careful to, to to retain some of the strategic ambiguity. And that's part of the problem is the president's own rhetoric, for example, when he called Xi Jinping a thug, and then you come to the summit and they're old friends, you know, you have a rhetoric mismatch. She,
0: she said that.
3: She she, she called him, a, right, the old right. friend. But, you know, Biden smiled, talked about their relationship. Um, you have a mismatch between, between rhetoric that goes even beyond where, where Trump was with the policies that he can't get too far ahead of those policies. And so those are brought back to rather traditional one-China policy, strategic ambiguity, and the like. Again, I think the thing that's different is we do have greater convergence with allies and partners, and that may allow everyone to come up with something that moves forward in a way that's a little bit more, as we would say, forward-leaning than where we've been.
0: Handler?
2: Yeah, I think um the reset has gotten kind of a bad rap as a as a word, but I do think it's worth comparing this with the Trump Xi meeting which was the excruciatingly embarrassing, oh, you know, I wish our government ran more like this summit in Beijing. And so if we've, you know, I think Biden did one very useful thing here by making U.S.-China meetings boring with low expectations, which I frankly think serves the longer-term purpose. Second, I actually, it's not accidental that the toning down of Biden administration rhetoric coincides with the emergence of more unity with the allies. And I think there's a deliberate choice to to go the competition route and try to say, okay, fine, you don't like the very strong language about Beijing, so now let's see what you will do, as opposed to what we say. And there, you know, the early signs like the quad and then the signs that some of the Europeans would actually maybe have a little quad envy. So we're moving in a positive direction there. Last point I wanted to make is that you heard, again, unlike previous U.S.-China summits, there was very little of the kind of the U.S. as begging shopkeeper, please buy more of my soybeans. And the administration has really assessed that, that you're just you're not getting anywhere on those economic negotiations, and instead, we are gonna focus on putting our house in order both economic-wise and security-wise. And that, again, is a significant step away from this cycle of, oh, we're gonna negotiate with you, and now we're gonna have lots of angry rhetoric and not be able to do very much on the economic side. So really, I think a cycle was broken there in um, the most boring way possible.
0: <laughs> uh, and in some of these things, boring uh, can can be good as long as you're moving the ball down the field.
1: Well, uh, it seems to me that uh, she probably took Biden's statements a lot more seriously than uh, his staffs walking them back. I mean, you're talking about a guy who's an autocrat, who's a dictator, who thinks everybody else doesn't really count. So he's going to look at the president of the United States and say, that's what really counts. Now, why is that important? It doesn't negate what you just heard from Misha and, and Heather, but what it does is create even more ambiguity in this man's mind. Is it really worth it? Can I get away with taking Taiwan? And remember, his number one concern is self-preservation. He still has to wait a year before he gets elected president for life. Number two is the party's preservation. Number three is dealing with an economy, and we've talked about this on, on, exactly. this, sir, on, on this podcast, dealing with an economy that's in deep trouble. So Taiwan is really number four. And when the President of the United States makes a statement twice, like he has, all you're doing is creating a real sense of uncertainty on the part of she. And then when you look at the Quad, when you look at what the Europeans are doing, when you even look at the fact that he's toned it down at the summit, you sort of wonder, well, what's he really saying and what's he really going to do? That's what you want to put in their heads. You want to really get she's head spinning, and I think Biden's doing that.
0: Um, and uh, this is something we've been discussing on the program for a long time, right? As, as you said, you know, and you know, I've written about this a couple of times, also autocrats have a tendency of lead- listening to the leader and not Secretary Zakheim or Hurlburt or anybody else uh, or General Oslin, although I think you would make a great secretary. You made a great secretary, and you'd make a great general. I mean, if you could hit the reset button again. Uh, give me your sense on whether China becomes, and I want to go to Belarus uh, and uh, the uh, Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict as well as what our expectations are, but very quickly from you, Misha. Is is China getting more dangerous, right? Uh, Dove has been talking about the Evergrande scandal. It is uh, widening. From your perspective, uh, as we've seen Hal Brands and Mike Beckley write, that China potentially becomes more dangerous in this. How dangerous is this economic collapse or economic challenge they face? And does that become a precipitating action in your mind?
3: Well, look, the economic challenge is is going on close to a decade old. Um, it depends how you view it. Is this what happens naturally when um, economies mature and states reach a, a middle income level and, and they begin to slow down? Uh, or is it something more fundamental, as we've seen, not just with Evergrande, uh, but with uh, the capital outflows over the past years uh, and all sorts of other problems, the, the real issue that's going on inside China, of course, is Xi's attempts to ensure the survival of the party. It's something Dove mentioned that is clearly number one. That accounts for the crackdown on tech companies, the crackdown on property companies, the crackdown on on all of these large corporate concerns that the the party worries are getting too powerful. Uh, And they are willing to accept lower economic growth. They're willing to accept economic inefficiencies in order to protect their own political base within, within the country, meaning you cannot have an alternative potential power center in the country. So does that make them more dangerous? It, it can make them more dangerous in, in a couple of different ways. One of course would be a fear on their part that time is not on their side and therefore whatever strategic goals they have need to be achieved sooner rather than later and that can lead to a miscalculation in the South China Sea, miscalculation over the Senkakus and the like. Uh, Also, it could mean that um, in order to detract or distract from public opinion, public dissatisfaction, uh, and even unrest inside of the country, that you tap the nationalism valve and you do something precisely against the Senkakus or more likely against a weaker enemy, such as the Philippines, uh, in order to gin up uh, nationalist feeling. And, and, and of course we get thrown into that. I think, to be quite frank, the real danger uh, related to Taiwan is not that the Chinese wake up one day and say we're going to take over Taiwan, because there, it, there, there are we can talk about it another time, there are a lot of problems with that operationally, strategically, and, and the like. What I think is far more likely, though, is that the Chinese use a, an armed encounter or a crisis, uh, a major crisis, somewhere else in the region, over the Spratleys, over the Paracels, over the Senkakus even, to then de facto neutralize Taiwan and and take it over. Meaning, while we are distracted with something that we're focusing on that is smaller, they actually move for a much bigger prize, and then they have escalated to a level that we need to make a very – a very serious decision about, are we actually going to intervene? It, it doesn't matter as much what Biden says, as much as what we are actually planned and ready to do. And again, I think what really worries she the most is that he's seeing this convergence, you know, with the Japanese, with AUKUS, with the Quad, with the EU getting involved, whereas before it was you just had to raise the stakes to the Americans and get them worried right. that by the way, no one's gonna support them if you if you go ahead on this, that now that calculation is becoming more difficult. So the uncertainties that Dove mentioned I think are important in the right. I would say though, that what really has thrown the leadership for a loop is that these uncertainties have started started with with Donald Trump, meaning you're going on five years of uncertainty now, was it Trump, was he a madman, was he gonna do this, he was back and forth, as Heather said, we we love you, we wanna do a deal with you, but on the other hand, we're gonna increase our, our military presence. Now it's being continued with Biden. I think the message that they're getting is that the game really is changing, the rules haven't fully been set, but they have far less confidence in being able to shape it the way that they did for about 40 years.
0: I want to get your uh, – everybody's sense on what you expect to hear at Halifax. But first, we have to talk about Lukashenko and Belarus. You wrote a piece, uh, Dove, that's in uh, The Hill uh, today. What are your concerns, in part because of uh, some of the rhetoric, obviously uh, the, well, the exercises and the troop buildup on the border? I mean, give us sort of this whole sense because, you know, Ukraine is under pressure. Uh, Belarus uh, is evolving the way Belarus does. Walk
1: us through. Well, uh, a lot of people think that uh – the Belarus crisis uh, gives uh, cover to Mr. Putin to do something on Ukraine. I don't know that that's the case, uh, because everybody is sort of expecting that it might be the case. But the issue in Belarus itself is important. You you cannot let Lukashenko and Putin, who's pulling the strings here, or at least not preventing Lukashenko from doing anything, um, you cannot let them get away with this because Lukashenko will keep doing it again. Now, People say, well, how do we know that Putin's really behind it? It's very simple. Lukashenko threatened to turn off the gas. Putin said, no, we're not going to turn off the gas. Lukashenko stopped saying anything about it. What we need to do, and we have a very strong tool right now, is to use Nord Stream 2 as a vehicle. The gas pipeline right now is being held up because of German bureaucratic technical reasons. And we can turn around to both Lukashenko and Putin and say, it's going to continue to be held up for technical reasons until you people absorb these folks. Now, they've already started sending back 400. Um, They can either send the rest of them back or absorb them. Uh, And we should make it clear to Putin that he may think he can turn the tap on and off, uh, but we do have vehicles as well. And the longer that this goes on without that kind of a forceful response, the more Putin is convinced that, you know, this is something he can keep trying. After all, he's done it with Ukraine several times. Whether, In theory, the Russians are not all that far from the Ukrainian border. It's about 700 kilometers in one case and one group of forces and about 400 in another group from the border. So they can get there pretty quickly. The roads are all there. Uh, on the other hand, it, they don't yet have sufficient logistic support to really pull it off. So I wouldn't bet on it, but I think they'll be watching, both Lukashenko and particularly Putin, to see how we respond to Belarus. And if there's no response to Belarus, then I think Putin will think, well, you know what? There won't be a response to Ukraine either because Belarus is threatening three NATO countries. We we focus on Poland, but it's not just Poland. They're bordering Latvia and Lithuania as well. So uh, if there is no response, and the Poles are screaming for a stronger response, and so are the others, then I think Putin begins to change his calculus a bit.
0: And, and what is uh, what is the kind of response the United States has to provide?
2: So I'm a little skeptical on the Nord Stream as weapon, or in the near term, I'm optimistic just because I see every reason that the bureaucratic delays will continue as long as there's a caretaker government in Germany. But the fact that you then have a new government coming in, that it's still, I think, unclear as of today who gets the foreign ministry. Funny problem, um, no one seems to want the foreign ministry, and maybe this kind of decision is partly why. But um, it's really hard for me to imagine getting a German government to go down the road that Dove is describing early on. And that makes me a little bit pessimistic about what we can accomplish there. Even though, as I say, I agree, I do think it's Lukashenko freelancing and Putin having to come in behind him. But it still has the effect you describe that if – we can't bring ourselves to mount any kind of response that tells you something about what you could hope to get away with elsewhere.
0: And very quickly Dov, what do you expect to hear over the coming 3 days that uh, because this is one of the flagship events and we're meeting
1: in person. Well, I think the issues we've just spoken about. Uh, remember, this is a conference where only democracies or democratic oppositions are invited. And so I think you're going to hear an awful lot about what Russia's trying to do, what China's trying to do, even what Lukashenko, who's a, really a minor figure in all this, is trying to do. Um, the threat to the West, and by the way, even in this, in this country, the, the threat from autocracy uh, just keeps growing. Anne Applebaum has a cover story in The Atlantic about it, and I think she's absolutely right.
2: Yes. In addition to that, you're going to continue to hear some Afghanistan hangover. I think a lot of soul searching, both about what it means for the relationship and what it means for our militaries and our ability to to have the kind of influence in the world that we say we want.